Hello and welcome to Sheridan Worldwide's podcast, Brilliance Realized. And with this episode, we have our eyes firmly fixed on the future of work. My name is Catherine Delapore. I'm a coach, a digital anthropologist, and I work at the intersection of culture, technology and data. Today, our topic for discussion is HR mindsets and skill sets of the future. And we're going to explore the pros and cons of a culture first approach versus a data first approach when building a future ready organization. And why truly understanding people, human beings, motivation, energy, emotion, how we like to work will be critical to designing organizations that can compete over the long term. Joining me today are two very special guests. Kirsten Ferber is People Director at Channel 4 and over a 20 year career, she's held senior people roles across some of the world's most loved media brands, including 20th Century Fox, Discovery and BBC Worldwide. Kirsten is passionate about how organizations can create a human culture where everyone can do their best work and drive transformation and growth. Matt Burns is co-founder and chief innovation officer at Bento HR, a global digital transformation consultancy that supports clients to align strategy, tech and data to create more human-centric workplaces. Prior to becoming a serial entrepreneur, he started his career at Walmart in change management and human resources, rising to chief human resource officer at JISC over a nine-year period. A very warm welcome to you both. Welcome, Kirsten. Welcome, Matt. Thank you, Catherine. Hello. Good to be here. Wonderful to have you both here. So I wanted to sort of start with quite a nice, gentle question. So we're going to set the scene for our audience with this question and really an opportunity for you both to glance in the rearview mirror. So thinking about your respective careers in human resources, in people leadership, what do you think has changed about the skill set and mindset requirement of human resources or people management? I'm going to go to Kirsten, you first. Well, thank you, Catherine, for that nice warm up question to look back and I think the profession is very interesting because in a very short space of time I look back it was called personnel then it was called HR and sometimes it is still called HR and now it's people and I think what's very interesting in terms of if I look back and actually where we are now particularly with all of the work and change that's come from the pandemic that we've all been um, working and um, living with, is how leaders really see the value of people and are now requiring um, something more from the HR people function in terms of experience, professionalism, and taking it to the next level. So as I, I sort of I look fondly back from a HR function, which was very much around pay and rations, to now really looking into how can we really drive our business forward because I need the right people to create the new idea and um, to take things forward. So that's how I would see how it's changed. And Matt, the same question to you. Yeah, I think it's an interesting question. And a lot of what Kirsten said resonates. I think in a sentence, we've evolved from administrative compliance-focused specialists to strategic performance-focused generalists. And I share that because I think the confluence of the broader macroeconomic shifts that have occurred recently 
technological disruption, and of course the pandemic has accelerated the evolution of the HR professional. It wasn't too long ago that in my first HR role, my very first job actually was to file paperwork. Um, and mercifully, it only took my coach about an hour to realize that I was poorly suited for that type of work and transitioned me to more relationship-oriented tasks. Um, at that time, HR leaders viewed technology as the sole domain of IT. And P&L, well, that was finance's responsibility. We were HR, which meant we were people-focused, and the perception was that tech and finance was anything but human. And I'll be frank, at the time, I had a really hard time with that perception. Um, I was still in my early 20s, and while certainly not a tech wonderkind, I had an instinct that when you deployed it intentionally with a purposeful human-centric lens, it could solve many of the problems and challenges that were facing the HR profession, namely things like a lack of strategic influence, that, that true impact at the boardroom table, uh, and the perception that, frankly, our deployment um, and perception broadly by organizations as HR as gatekeepers, taskmasters, impediments to progress. Uh, I once had a senior leader joke with me that if I want to hear yes, I go to marketing. If I want to hear no, I go to HR. And I know a lot of HR professionals at that time struggled with the perception, uh, with their identity. And on one hand, they saw the potential of our profession to really transcend its current role and have greater impact. And on the other, they were fearful that if we relinquished our compliance focus that we would actually lose what little influence that we had. And sadly, it's a challenge that I still think plagues some organizations today. And at the same time, um, if you want to explore how we can extricate ourselves from that dynamic, I'm happy to share more on that later. But to answer your question more directly, I think it's a, a greater appreciation of our critical role within the broader business. I think about how our organizational influences our approach to our profession and how we can influence the organization ourselves from our vantage point. I think that we've changed to appreciate a broader understanding of tech and data and innovation and view them not as threats, but rather as you know, solutions that as we step away from legacy manual administrative tasks and into a space uh, as experienced architects, as strategic partners, as performance coaches, um, that we really need to embrace these types of thinking going forward um, and mirroring, frankly, every other corporate function as the information economy and more broadly, knowledge has been democratized. It's the transition from deep technical expertise to having adequate knowledge across a broader array of topics. Behavioral psychology, employment law, compensation strategy, design thinking. Before, I think we value, Catherine, um, an encyclopedic recall of technical knowledge. Uh, and today, instead, we value the ability to synthesize, curate, and share compelling stories that tell action. Um, and it's a cool place to be. Wonderful. Thank you both. You know, what I really take away from what Kirsten has said is, you know, this huge move away from um, sort of rewards and employee benefits and to your point, Matt, administrative task driven role to um, a human people really matter. And even building on that further, this idea of HR in the past, protecting the status quo and now in the 21st century, needing to be required to be um, a change catalyst. And this brings me really nicely onto our next question. So here's a scenario for both of you. As people leaders, how would you approach building a business from the ground up? You need to make a choice here. You need to pick one from a culture first approach versus a digital data first approach. 
Um, and I'm really interested in which one you would choose and why you would choose that approach. And I think it's a perfect question because companies right now are considering how do we build back? How do we go back into the office or not? How do we reimagine uh, work at this point in where we are with COVID? So um, if I can ask Kirsten that question, which one would you choose and why? What a great question. And I love it, Catherine Harry. You're forcing us to choose between one or the other and not go halfway house, which um, you know we all like to do as humans. So on a serious note, I would go culture first. And the reason I would go culture first is I really strongly believe it's about creating an environment which is really going to build your business in the right way because we've talked at the, you know at the beginning how people are critical to success. So let's create the right environment so people can be successful and setting it up right from the beginning. And I noticed lots of startups um, have focused quite a bit of their time in terms of really defining what does the environment look like? What are the behaviours that we want to role model um, and really codifying their behaviours and values right from the beginning. So there's even only three or four people really designing that up front to be able then to scale a business quickly. So not if you're going to be hiring people, you need to um, identify what are the success factors and therefore what is the environment for someone to be able to do that. So I would firmly go if you're pushing me down a, an avenue is culture is first. So I love that creating the right environment for humans to do their best work. Does that mean culture as a competitive advantage, perhaps? Um, we'll come back to that. Matt, what's your choice? Well, I think to make this interesting conversation even more interesting, I'm going to choose the inverse. In my situation, I would choose more of a digital data approach. I think if given the choice between one or the other. And I say that because in this VUCA world that we live in, we need technology to augment and complement all of our human contributions. We need flexibility and we need adaptability and portability. Three attributes that we frankly as humans struggled with when we compare it to technology. Technology doesn't fear change. It doesn't play office politics. It doesn't hoard resources to build empires, but rather when deployed in a human centric way can fuel innovation and inclusion and engagement. Um, I view, frankly, technology as any other employee in an organization, and I try and align it with what it does best. And as we move in this increasingly fast, competitive world, I prioritize tech infrastructure because it, as I mentioned earlier, allows us to streamline and automate many of the traditional tasks more accurately and more quickly and certainly more efficiently um, when compared to humans and thereby freeing up time for the, the people in the organization to do their best work. Um, you know, work that focuses around things like relationships and creativity and innovation, um, work that they do best. And I think in that sense, if I was asked to choose between the two of them, I would wanna lay a technological and digital foundation for the organization so that people could show up as their full selves. And I worry that absent of that in this binary scenario, that people would instead default to doing things the traditional way. And I think that in a lot of cases, they would do so at the organization's expense. Very interesting. I mean, it does beg the question, do you have to have a strong culture to be commercially successful? 
And I think, Catherine, that's, um, you know, yes, because it does go back to the comment you made before around culture, people are your competitive advantage. I mean, we've all heard as people professionals, the war on talent. I don't believe that's changed at all. People, we're all choosing about where we want to work, how we want to work. And culture is a place that will give a definition of what it's like to work in a place and people to then choose, do they want to? So I think there's definitely a competitive advantage around talent. I think the second is around once you've you know hired the great people that you have hired, how can they be the best they can be? so that you know you get the best from it and that will then essentially move to the bottom line as well so i think there's definitely that link to competitive advantage and i think from a technical perspective i mean i totally agree matt with what you're saying around having the technology which provides the foundations to free up people so they can focus on the innovation and the creativity and the relationship as humans we do I do believe tech, though, can be designed around the culture of an organization. And as another example of how culture is and how tech is used um, and what that symbol is. So they definitely do link together. I'm biased. I'd certainly still, um, Catherine, if you're saying, Kirsten, which one would you go first with? I would start with culture, but culture and data and tech have to come together. Yeah, I couldn't agree with, with Kirsten Moore. I think I think it has to have a symbiosis of all those factors. And I think that when we talk about is culture competitive advantage, I, I also agree. The answer is yes. But I think the nuance in the answer is that culture can look very different depending on the organization. So I think we all would agree that there are organizations out there today that each of us probably wouldn't work in. You know, I think about companies like Amazon, for example, or Goldman Sachs where their values may not align perfectly with mine and they still are realizing a lot of success even in this changed world. And there are other organizations that take a very different view around employee contributions and culture and wellness that have equal amounts of success. So I think what it comes down to when it involves culture is alignment. It's being very clear about what your culture is as an organization, clearly signaling that into the marketplace to attract the right kind of people to the organization and ensuring all the infrastructure in your organization itself, whether that's technology, data, programming, strategy, ways of working, leadership principles align with that type of culture. I think where organizations struggle is when they try and be all things to all people or misrepresent who they are compared to what they are, uh, I think in that case is when you fall into some challenges. So as long as you have complete resonance of alignment through your culture, whatever it looks like, I think that's critical for success in today's world. That's really interesting. I mean, that whole point around authenticity, particularly um, as Kirsten, you said about, you know, war for talent, absolutely. People, humans can sense when organizational messages Um, values, behaviours are inauthentic. Um, But I think both of you raise um, a very good point about actually, maybe you can't have one without the other. Maybe there there does need to be, um, or there is a symbiotic relationship between culture and technology, digital data. Um, Because at the end of the day, you know, we need to have robust measures for things like culture. Um, and actually, that, the, here's a question. What options do we have for measuring something like culture? Matt, what would you say on that? Well, there's the traditional ways to measure culture. I think we all are familiar with the annual engagement survey, 
which mercifully is, is shifting now to being much more frequently deployed. Um, and I think we look at taking a tech perspective to this question. I look at you know, assessments like sentiment analysis, you know, the amount of innovation occurring right now in artificial intelligence and machine learning that allows us to actually measure the sentiment of employees over the course of you know, their time in the organization, who's interacting with who, how frequently leaders are meeting with their direct reports, I think is, 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 are interesting measures of culture. But I think it goes back to, again, Catherine, is how do we define it and what is important to us? So if we say as an organization that it's critical, especially in this hybrid work world that we're operating in, that there's a regular touch point between leaders and the members of their team, well, we can measure that with technology by you know, going through calendars and seeing when people are interacting with one another. And we can also, through predictive analytics, infer some of the consequences of perhaps not realizing that in terms of employee performance um, or in terms of employee engagement, things like attrition. Um, there are a lot of um, interesting measures and, and tools we can use, but I think rather than getting into the details of that, to me, it's more, again, about the alignment is what is this culture look like? What should it look like? What are the practices that we need to employ in the organization to realize it? And then we look at the technology and the data as methods of both measurement, but also of assessment. And I think that to add to that point is that when we're looking at data, because there are, as you said, so many data points, which is fantastic, it's been clear around which of the data points um, we want to look at, which is going to be helpful, because at the end of the day, we're, we're looking here to ensure our organisations are successful, as well as always ensuring that, you know, our people are, you know, looked after and uh, well-being. So it's really looking into the insights and where tech and data, we can find those insights. It's then how are those translated? And then what do we do with those insights? And that's where I think in a way, if you open up your question at the beginning, it's another example of if you have data and human uh, translation and connection and communication, which is a form of culture, fused together when you're measuring how well are you doing, that can be very, very, very powerful. The trick is being really making it simple and making it clear so you don't get bogged down in too much uh, data that you actually miss what that big insight might be. I want to dig a little bit deeper on this piece around values-driven cultures and authenticity and purpose and this whole new world that is emerging around sustainability. It appears to me to be a key theme in terms of kind of modern business practice and intention. And, you know, a lot of reports have come out around, you know, different mindsets. And there is the mindset of stewardship that's really rising to prominence here. This idea of purpose beyond profit, the importance of people, um, social impact and environmental impact. I'm interested, why should human resources pay attention to, you know, the name is ESG, environmental social governance, finance and investing, just really a build on the whole kind of intention. Why should I pick your business over another business if I am the talent? Kirsten, do you have any thoughts on sustainability and that importance? So I suppose the question is, Catherine, I'm hearing is how should HR professionals think about this mm -hmm. 
because this is, I think, very critical now as the new generation of workers, employees, whatever definition it is coming through, are rightly so purpose-driven and wanting to do the right thing um, and ensuring what they are doing is having an impact on a greater scale, particularly in a portfolio career. And I think in the turmoil of the last year that has completely shifted how we work. So as HR professionals or people professionals, however we want to call ourselves is, being aware of what are the needs of future employees, employees in the organization, the next generation of employees is absolutely critical because that really drives many of the people strategies in terms of how to attract those people. And also when they come into the organization, how do they like to work? How do they like to be led? What's motivating? So there are many different reasons of why understanding who your future potential people, how are they motivated and energized is absolutely critical because that needs to layer back into an organization and start thinking about what those people practices are to be built and to be evolved. I wonder if you ever imagined back at the beginnings of your HR careers that actually you would be having a conversation about finance and investment and institutional investment. Did you ever imagine that HR would be having those conversations? Matt, what do you think? I did, but I was probably an odd duck for somebody who was early in their HR career. I think before I go into the connection between ESG and HR, I think it's an important thing to say right now that this can't be an HR program. So in a future where ESG becomes more prevalent inside of organizations, this can't be solely owned by HR. This needs to be a organizational strategy and have equal attention paid to it by HR, finance, IT, marketing, operations, your supply chain. It needs to be an organizational emphasis because I worry that if it becomes stuck in the HR bucket, it'll get relegated to second tier in terms of importance and other types of business metrics. If you, if you view things as I do through a balanced scorecard lens will receive greater importance. So I think, you know, I just wanna put that point out there that I think ESG needs to be a broader organizational mandate. I'm not surprised that it's rising in importance because I think that organizations and the employees that inhabit them at all levels senior leadership, all the way down to people who are just starting out in organizations, are gaining a greater appreciation of, one, the impact of their organizations in a broader economic context, and two, in a broader socioeconomic context, that we have the ability to influence what's occurring in the planet around us by way of our work. And to do that with intention requires a strategy that factors in the external implications of our actions that happen internally. Now, I've worked in many large Fortune 1000 companies where, I'll be honest, most of my intention, if not all of it, was focused entirely inward. What happened outside the four walls of the organization wasn't something I gave a lot of consideration to because it wasn't how I was measured. It wasn't how I was managed. It wasn't what I was being held accountable to. Um, and it wasn't what was being rewarded in the organization. But I think now we've entered into this new era of business where we see the rise of the social entrepreneur. We see the rise of conscious driven businesses. And I think it's because we understand the challenge that lies ahead for us and business 
has a role to play along with government and education in solving some of these larger problems that face you know, each of us in our own either direct or indirect way. So I think it's an important conversation for HR people to have. I do agree with Kirsten as well that it, there is a recruitment and cultural implication to all of it because I think that for you know, our, our millennials and our Gen Z employees that are increasingly looking for this connection around purpose more so than a paycheck, it's an important element to it. And I just wanna make sure that it, it doesn't become you know, where some of the other earlier initiatives like engagement or diversity and inclusion have sometimes stalled because they were stuffed into HR and kind of just, if in a lot of cases, um, not prioritized to the degree that they should have been. And only now are they rising in prominence. I think we can avoid that same type of pitfall if we look at ESG differently. Mm, mm. Do you know what, while you were both talking there, what came into my mind is not just about this external, to your point about sort of understanding what is going on in the world, but also kind of in thinking about the employee and thinking about what is a sustainable job? What is a healthy job? We're all kind of coming up against um, all sorts of crises, um, challenges around, you know, mental health and well-being of um, our workforces. Um, so I think that whole this whole piece around sustainability goes even further in terms of defining what is a manageable workload look like in the future. And to your earlier point, Kirsten, about creating uh, the right environment to do your best work, also creating and crafting uh, jobs that actually energize people and don't drain them of their resources, because, you know, human energy is, is a finite resource. So let's think about uh, predictions, your predictions for the upcoming decade. Um, so let's think about 2030. Um, and I'd love your kind of views and your opinions, your predictions in terms of what's changed in terms of the HR function and practice. In fact, will we even recognize uh, people leadership, human resources 10 years from now? Uh, Kirsten, what do you think? Well, I hope we'd like to recognise it a little bit. So I don't think it's going to be completely um, shift into something um, that we don't recognise. What I do think, though, and I'm starting to see the trends myself, is that the people function, and we were starting to talk about it before, Matt, you were um, mentioning it, is people function is starting to be owned by um, leaders in a broader way. So rather than the HR director or the people director having all the responsibility for developing and strategizing around how to drive the people agenda forward, that is very much going to be owned at the collective amongst the leadership group. And I think also right through the organization and organizations will be different. So I think that's one shift that's going to be. And then with that will require a different need as a people expert to be able to uh, be ahead of what the trends are to um, support organizations to being successful. So I really believe is that rather than what is the leadership approach, watch the performance management approach, that will all be, back to your point Matt, automated um, in data or shifted through another trend, but really having that collective uh, responsibility of co-creating how to really drive the people agenda through organizations that will look very different um, because I do believe the portfolio career will absolutely take off to another level. 
Yeah, so actually on that point, I'm reading a, a fascinating book at the moment called The Hundred Year Life. And uh, it's a book I would recommend to anybody to read because it really makes you think very differently about uh, your career. This whole idea of sort of three phases of career is definitely well and truly over. Matt, what's your prediction for the future of human resources or people leadership? I love this question because either we're going to look very, very smart five years from now or we're going <laughs> to look very, very silly. Uh, and I have I'm, I'm, I'm equal bets in each category there, Matt, that matter. Um, I think for me, I see a couple of things. So I agree with, with Kirsten insofar as I, I don't think it's going to be fundamentally unidentifiable from what it is today. I think we're going to see a continued migration of technology and analytics and innovation, populating HR, removing that manual repetitive administration and working its way down into smaller and mid-sized organizations. Uh, because I think those organizations have been slower to catch on to some of these trends due to lack of resources or perhaps lack of access to technology and things like cost. I think that's going to continue. I see in the next, you know, if you will, 12 to 36 months, we have to, as HR professionals, give greater consideration to employee experience across three different modalities. The majority of our time has been spent focusing on the employee experience for an in-office work setting. I think now we're going to have to give equal care and attention to people that are working fully remotely, as well as people working in a hybrid way. Uh, and that means journey mapping those employee experiences, looking at every interaction between the employee and the organization and, and mapping through what does the experience look like and how can we enhance it, either through programming and strategy or technology. Uh, I think that's key. Um, I think looking at how we tether together innovations in our organization. So in the same way we've applied attention to organizational design, applying that same level of consideration to the technologies in our organization, ensuring that they are frictionless, that they are fully integrated, that we're not performing duplicate work in places we don't have to, um, and ultimately delivering better service to our employees so that it's on par with the service that our customers would expect from us. Um, I do see um, you know, a continued migration into augmented and virtual reality. Um, we're going to need to empower hybrid work. Zoom is fine. Zoom is fine for a two-dimensional, you know, binary conversation, but it, it's limited in terms of collaboration. It's limited in terms of its immersion, and it's limited in terms of its engagement. So I think technologies like augmented and virtual reality will allow us to bridge geographic barriers and co-location barriers, but at the same time provide that missing intimacy of interactions for the activities where it's best suited, things like recruitment or onboarding and training and development, performance management, where you want a high degree of intimacy in the interaction, but in, for whatever reason in the future, you may not have the benefits of co-location. And I think that we're going to pair all this with a greater sophistication around our data, uh, that we will, as a profession, be more intentional about what we measure, how we measure it, what information we're collecting, how we analyze it, how we validate it and using it ultimately to predict trends. Uh, I think about the analogy of firefighting versus fire prevention. I think traditionally, a lot of business units, including HR, have focused on fire fighting, where you're playing this proverbial game of KPI whack-a-mole, and when something pops up that's an exception, we put a lot of attention around it, and then the next month the report comes out that something else is a problem, we put attention around it, but we sometimes can struggle to solve the root cause problem. Um, whereas I think with data in particular, we'll have the ability to get predictive and actually solve problems before they become issues um, and to do so in a way that you know, gives us a greater sense of risk illumination, opportunity cost, 
um, and potential, frankly, for individuals, teams, and at the organizational level. Uh, and I think that what excites me most about the future is I, I see a continued movement towards HR becoming generalists in a business context. I think we've seen that, we've alluded to that over the course of our conversation today, but I see more of that in areas that we may not have thought of in the past. I think of you know, topics like behavioral psychology, neuroscience, biohacking. You know, in a knowledge-based economy, it's the HR professionals who most keenly understand the linkages between wellness, intrinsic motivation, and discretionary effort that I think are gonna offer the greatest value to their organizations. And understanding elements like you know, the importance of sleep in performance and understanding the importance of you know, neuroscience in how teams work together and how they collaborate is going to become increasingly important as HR advances from, again, that administrative archetype into more of a performance centric HR division. Now, listen, that is a future I could get really excited about. Do you both think that we're going to see more chief HROs or chief people officers competing with marketers and finance people for the top job for the CEO or for the CXO role? Do you think that might happen? I think so. I mean, I, I think that I don't see any reason why not, Catherine. I just think that there is a gap with some HR leaders toolboxes right now that would preclude them from taking that top spot. So I think there's no reason why not. And I think in, in a perfect archetype, if an HR leader understands deeply the culture of their organization, deeply how to connect with and resonate with and align the individuals in their organization, that's a great place to start from. And I think that's a great place for any leader to start from. And I think you need to pair that knowledge with a sound understanding of the economics of your organization, the macroeconomics of your industry, of the technological infrastructure in your organization. You need to be a true student of your business and understand how all the pieces work together at a strategic lens. Uh, and I think that HR is moving more towards that. So if we find HR leaders that are, are well-rounded and do have all those things in their toolbox, I think it's a fantastic um, you know, candidate for any type of role, especially organizations going through massive amounts of change. Because we all know from our experiences that whether it's a digital transformation, whether it's a restructuring project, whether it's a hyper growth organization, the stumbling blocks at those phases of an organization's evolution are rarely technological and rarely financial. It usually comes down to the people, which is why you're seeing many more CHROs, CPOs stepping into CIO type roles because they realize that they don't need to be deep technical experts in IT and learn how to code. They need to be able to rally teams and rally change and influence people at a broad organizational level to really move the cultural changes that go alongside any major technological or financial shifts. So I think with that broader scorecard, HR people can be fantastic CEOs. I agree. And I, and I think the other opportunity is around execs moving roles. So what I mean by that, a chief marketing officer being in a chief people officer role um, a finance role being in a chief people. I think we're going to see a lot more of that because of those uh, broader executive skills, which requires all those different elements. And I think that's then a great opportunity succession for CEO at the top. 
I also think that the traditional skills in an HR function will change as well. A little bit what you were saying, Matt, in terms of if we look at the customer or should we say slash consumer experience from outside um, an office, uh, what does that look like that's different to maybe how you would design it inside an office? And those are different skills that you'd want in your teams that will then create and evolve that change through that team. So I do think we're going to see a lots more of mixing of skills in the people arena for the better to really have that broad exposure. Wonderful. And I think I agree with that with you, Kirsten, in terms of, I mean, very interestingly, I have for the first time been invited to go and talk to chief finance officers about emotional intelligence. So I think you're absolutely right where, you know, that depth and breadth of experience um, in terms of individual functions. I mean, it's all about collaboration now and co-creation and diverse voices. And I can absolutely see that happening. I have one final question for both of you. What is the most important question your CEO and your CFO colleagues should be asking today about talent? I'll go first um, on that, um, unless Matt, you're going to jump in. I would say one of the biggest thing questions I would be asking is around adaptability. Now, that might sound no different to before, but adaptability in terms of how everything is shifting so quickly in terms of how we're working and linked into that to be adaptable, you've got to be resilient. So is your talent, are they resilient and are they taking care of their ability to be resilient? So have they got that uh, wellness awareness? Again, I think Matt, you were touching on that before. So those are the questions that I would be asking the talent because those are the people who are gonna drive you into the next two years because we can only really um, look that far because things are constantly gonna change. Yeah, great answer. Uh, I completely agree. I would add, uh, I think it comes down to, do we have the right skill sets populating in the organization to power the organization's future success? Um, we've talked a lot about HR and its disruption, but I think the same can be applied to finance, marketing, IT, operations, logistics. They're all going through fundamental shifts in how their skills are being recognized, the tools they're using to achieve their roles. And I think that as the wave of change picks up more pace, ensuring that you have the necessary skills, either addressing skill gaps through reskilling or recruitment or workforce augmentation is critical uh, because we need to ensure that we have the right people at the right time in the organization to fuel its future growth. Fantastic. I just wanted to say a huge thank you to our guests today. Thank you so much, Matt and Kirsten. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it far and wide. I'm very much looking forward to having you back here for our next episode of Brilliance Realize. And that's a wrap.